ask you this morning to be opening your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to walk a little together up to chapter 8, starting in 4, 23 through 24. Turn there and then we'll quickly walk over to our text for this morning. I love how structured Matthew's gospel is, how he sets things up. But in Matthew 4, 23 through 24, we have this uh, summary statement of this first narrative section where it says that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, it says, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount was a detailed look at these two overlapping ideas. We get a sample of Jesus' teaching of the law, where Jesus calls out the doctors and the lawyers and the scribes and the Pharisees for twisting the law beyond recognition. And by doing so, Jesus is claiming to be ushering in the kingdom of God. Their teaching, that, which was known as the halakar, that means the way to walk or the path, that was the tradition of the elders. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not good enough. In fact, good enough isn't a good enough moniker. It's downright unrighteous. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that when the Messiah came, that he would agree with them, that he would side with them. But then Jesus shocks them when you flip over to Matthew 5.20 and He says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then from Matthew 5.21-48, Jesus contrasts their tradition six different times. The halakah, that tradition of the elders, what the Pharisees held to and what they quoted all the time, it was always denoted by this phrase, You've heard it said, or you've heard it said of them of old, or the ancients said. And he mentions that six different times and then follows it up with this, but I say unto you. So Jesus takes how they interpret Moses' law, and then he says, this is what you all are saying, but this is the authoritative pronouncement from God, from the prophet that he sent to restore the law. And then from 21 through, you, you just get this, 21... Yes, he says, murder is wrong, but it starts with your lovelessness and your hatred in your heart. And yes, Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said adultery is wrong, but it begins in your heart again with lust or covetousness, wanting something that's not yours. And then in 5, 31, yes, Moses gave you the right to divorce, but that was because of the hardness of your heart from the beginning. It wasn't like that. You shouldn't be be looking to put away your wife to begin with. And in Matthew 5, 33, yes, you need to keep your vows, but your vows, you're making them so you know, particular in how you have to word it. You, you need to just be honest all the time instead of looking for loopholes to be able to be dishonest and lie and twist your words. And by 5, 38, he says, yes, the government is supposed to execute justice, but you shouldn't be desiring vengeance against everybody that wrongs you and having that sort of hateful spirit. And... 543, you need to love your neighbor. But they added and hate your enemy. And that was just a complete addition to God. That's nowhere in the Old Testament. Jesus calls them out and says, that's not the way your heavenly Father is. He highlights six different times here that they have external expectations of righteousness, but He goes down to the heart and says, your hearts are corrupt. And that's the problem. It's not just your actions. It's who you are. starts before your actions. And then He really hits them where it hurts, starting in chapter 6, 
Not only were the scribes and Pharisees excusing their sin by their unrighteous teaching, beyond that, even their righteous deeds were stained by sin. The things that they did that they were the most proud of. The scribes and Pharisees were envied by everyone around because of their piety, and they enjoyed the attention. They liked the greetings in the marketplace and the prominent seats in the synagogue. But then in six, one, uh, chapter, chapter 6-1 through 6-33, Jesus exposes their piety as a mask that's covering up their wretched hearts once again. You do these external things to make yourself appear righteous, but inwardly you're corrupt. He warned that their giving, their prayers, and their pious fastings were just disguises for their idolatry of their heart because they did these things because they wanted the honor of men. They didn't do them out of love of God. Jesus tells them that their entire value system is off, that their hearts are set on the wrong treasures, that their eyes are on the wrong ambitions, that they're slaves to the wrong desires, that their problem is way worse than they think. They have their reward already in this age and there is nothing owed to them in the age to come. To end the sermon, Jesus warns that there's a deceptive path, that there's deceptive teachers, and that there's deceptive foundations on which you can build that look like you're making progress, but the end is destruction. And everything in this sermon points to these deceived ones as being the scribes and Pharisees and all those that would follow their path, their halakah. That looks like it's a leading to life, but it's actually a broad path that leads to destruction that they're building on the wrong foundation of earthly treasures and instead of on eternal foundation of heavenly treasures and that one day their house would fall and great would be their fall and all their work would be wasted. So that's a brief rundown, very brief and um, insufficient synopsis of 4.23 through the end of 7. And now in Matthew 8 we move to this narrative portion of the gospel and remember again, you know, I started in Matthew four twenty three, and I didn't finish the verse. It's, he was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in four twenty three, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a detailed sample of the teaching of the law and the proclamation of the kingdom. And now in this section of narrative, Jesus gives us a detailed look at Jesus healing every disease and every kind of sickness among the people. But as we saw last week, just like Jesus' preaching of the law was a contradiction and a refutation and an indictment of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus recounts Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew recounts Jesus' priestly healing ministry in a way that would also shock, confound, and even needle the scribes and Pharisees a little bit. They wouldn't be shocked because of Jesus' ability to heal. No, they would be shocked by who Jesus was healing, who he was focusing his ministry on, and how he was healing them. That's two shocking aspects. As we saw last week, Jesus is literally touching the untouchables. That's how he does it. He goes to these untouchable people and he touches them. And he heals the, the people that are despised the most in the culture. The law said that touching a leper made one ceremonially unclean. The tradition of that day taught that if you went into a Gentile's house, then you were ceremonially unclean. And in some Jewish traditions, touching a woman, even a woman's hand, at any time, regardless of when you did it, would make you unholy and unclean. 
The Jewish halakah also forbade touching persons who had any sort of fever. And of course, Jesus walks up and touches a woman with a fever on the hand. He touches the leper and he offers to go into the Gentile's house. So Matthew is intentionally and provocatively pointing out the merciless ignorance and arrogance of the scribes and Pharisees. You have no compassion. Jesus is coming to and touching lepers, offering to enter Gentiles' houses and heal their slaves, touching women with the fever. And it's especially striking when we realize that one of the 18 benedictions that a Jewish man prayed every day was, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And what do we see from Jesus? We see him focusing his ministry on these lowly ones. Later in Matthew, we will see their obvious offense that they took. In Matthew 9, 11 through 13, the Pharisees said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. If you don't realize that's good news to you, then you're in grave danger. That is very good news for you, that Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He came for the lowly and the untouchables. The ones that think that they're good enough are the ones that will be left aside. And the ones that are humble and realize their need are the ones that have hope of mercy. Well, last week we gave this big picture look at Matthew's main point in these three miracles. And as promised, we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at each of these three miracles individually in more detail. The main question that I want to try to focus on in each of these smaller sections of Matthew 8, 2 through 17 is why is Jesus compassionate toward these outcasts? but condemning of the scribes and Pharisees. So our first sermon, of course, will focus on Jesus' encounter with this leper in Matthew 8, 2 through 4. Matthew 8, 2 through 4. And God's Word tells us that a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no man, but go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We're going to look at a leper in the Lord this morning. We're going to first look at four things about this leper and his approach of Jesus. Four things in this text. The leper's boldness, his bowing, his bending to Christ's will, and his belief. Let's look at those one at a time before we get to our Lord's response to this leper. But first, his boldness. And it says, a leper came up to him. You're like, that doesn't sound bold. Like, what am I missing here? Uh... How does a leper simply coming up to Jesus suggest boldness? And the reason we don't recognize it is because we're so far removed from a 2,000-year-ago culture. And we've got to put ourselves back there to understand what's going on. We've got to remember, first of all, that leprosy is repulsive. Absolutely repulsive. On some small level, you might be able to relate. Perhaps you've had a fever blister. Anybody ever here had bad fever blisters before? 
or a bad acne breakout. You just don't want to be seen, do you? You've got those imperfections and you kind of want to hide. You're embarrassed. You almost feel unclean. So people are coming around and kind of want to cover it up and look away so they, so they won't see it. Because you realize, you realize that you've got something wrong, something that people might not, might not uh, be comfortable seeing or being around. You don't want to see their ugh when they, their eyes glance. Or, or you certainly don't want them to ask, what is that on your face? Because, and people do, don't they? I remember uh, when sometimes I would have a fever blister and I wouldn't even want to go to school because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be around anybody. I cut my toe off when I was 16 years old and laughingly I wanted to, I was going to go to the pool after that and I wanted to wear a sock on one of my feet for two reasons. One is I was a dork and secondly, I was self-conscious. You're, I had a toe that was missing. Your confidence can be demolished by physical imperfections or physical deformities. Well, let's just say that leprosy is a little bit worse than a cold sore an acne breakout, or a missing toe. And by a little bit, I mean, whoa, a whole lot. That reminds you of uh, this book, Unclean, Unclean. It described leprosy for us, and it says, as the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores on the skin and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin around the eyes and the ears begins to bunch up, and deep furrows between them starts swelling and the face of the individual starts to look like a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. You can even smell it. For the leper emits a very unpleasant odor, that of rotting skin. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently attacks the, the, the voice box, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality so that his voice becomes hoarse. So you can see, feel, and smell the leper. You can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. I mentioned last week that Matthew doesn't give us an indication of how far the leprosy had progressed in this leper, because that's not Matthew's main point. But in Luke's parallel passage, he does tell us how far it had progressed because Luke's wanting to emphasize the miracle more than Matthew is. Matthew's emphasizing who's being healed. Luke emphasizes the miracle itself. And Luke tells us in Luke 5.12, while he was in one of those cities, behold, a man was covered with leprosy, or he was full of leprosy. It, it indicated an advanced stage, that it had gotten very, very bad. It had taken over his entire body. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So this, this is on the extreme scale of leprosy. And he still comes up to Jesus. And that's not all. It's not just how physically repulsive he looked. Secondly, leprosy was looked upon as a curse. When a person was found to have this serious form of leprosy, he was supposed to tear his clothes and leave his head uncovered and, and his mouth always covered to present breathing on people or people were getting air from his mouth getting on them to, so they would be contaminated. And he had to cry out from a distance, unclean, unclean, so no one would come around him. Lepers were legally ostracized and forbidden to live in any community with their fellow Israelites, according to Numbers 5.2. Among the 61 defilements of Judaism, only touching a, bed, a dead body was more serious. The Talmud forbade a Jew from coming closer than six feet 
to a leper. And if the wind was blowing, then it was 150 feet. Lepers were seen as repulsively unclean and cursed by God, Numbers 12.10. So leprosy was, and actually even still is today, regarded with horror. There's a social stigma even today connected to it. It's repulsive, disgraceful, and off-putting. It sets its victims apart from the rest of society even today. We type leper, and one of the next things that's going to come in your Google bar is the word colony. You know why? Because they don't, people don't accept them, and they have to go flock together because they're just, they, people don't want to be around them. So they're only with one another. Even in Luke 17, most lepers that even wanted to be healed by Jesus, it tells us Luke 17, 12 through 13, as he entered a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance to meet him, and they raised their voice from a distance saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. But this leper came up to Jesus. As repulsive as he was, as one who was regarded to be cursed. And we also have to bear in mind this. Today we don't typically think of a connection between disease and sin, but at that time they did very much so. We under we underemphasize the connection of sin and sickness because there can be and often is a connection. Actually, there always is a connection. If there was not sin in this world, there would be no sickness. But it's not always a particular sickness. It's some sort of judgment of God. But in their mind, they overemphasized this connection. If you're sick, then there's a particular sin and you're especially sinful and you deserve what you've got. Jews believed that illness was a punishment for sin in particular. Especially they believed it about leprosy. So leprosy was both a punishment for sin and a, a, a divine curse. And before you think that the people at that time were foolish for believing that there's a connectedness between sickness and sin, you need to read your Old Testament. God gave Miriam leprosy because she criticized Moses in Numbers 12, 9 and 10. King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy when he was discovered in the temple by the chief priests burning incense, which was the role of priests, but he was doing it as king. He was sinning, going against God's word, and God struck him with leprosy as a direct consequence of his disobedience. And then um, Elisha's slave was punished with leprosy because of his greed in 2 Kings 5, 26-27. So a typical leper would never dream of coming up to anyone for help. If, if they may have thought about it at one time, then experience had trained them to do otherwise. Had this leper attempted to approach the average Jew, the response would have been humiliating. The Jew would have been unwilling to be near this leper for fear of catching the disease or at the very least having the terrible inconvenience of being ceremonially unclean by association and they would have ran, not walked, they would have ran away to avoid being contaminated. Some Jews would even throw rocks at lepers to intimidate them to make sure that a leper kept a healthy distance. So a leper would have been very reluctant to approach someone that they believe, even if they believe this person could cleanse them because they would have feared the ire and the disapproving gaze or the wholesale rejection of them as unworthy of such compassion because they were sinful and justly cursed by God. But this leper came to Jesus with boldness. He obviously sensed a love and a tenderness in Jesus that allowed him to approach him without fear of reprimand or fear of being stoned for that matter. 
He somehow knew that Jesus was neither afraid of him or ashamed to associate with him. He didn't shout to Jesus from a distance as he was supposed to do, but he approached him directly. And we've observed now this leper's boldness, but let's turn our attention to this next point, his bowing posture. He wasn't just bold, he was bowing. A leper came to him, verse 2 again, and bowed down before him. Boldness can come in many forms. And sometimes boldness can be a sign of pride or presumption, can it? I'm reminded of Luke 18, 9 through 14, where you get this parable. Jesus is always bashing the Pharisees and, and siding with the downtrodden and the despised of society. And you get that in Luke 18, 9 through 14. You have this contrast between a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're in the temple. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Notice he's standing. He's not bowing. This Pharisee's standing and he says this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice, twice a week and I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away and unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven, was beating himself on the breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, but me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who's kind of, what kind of boldness did this leper have? Well, it certainly wasn't like this Pharisee that stood congratulating himself. No, he did approach with boldness. But his boldness was not a sign of pride or presumption. It was a sign of understanding his great need and his belief that Jesus was compassionate toward unclean sinners. And he bowed himself in humble adoration. The word here is uh, proskuneo. It, it literally means to prostrate your, yourself, but it, it all, most, most usually it's translated in the New Testament as to give homage or worship to someone who is superior to you. So he's bowing before this Jewish carpenter, worshiping him. Who are we supposed to worship? God. You've got this hint of him recognizing something, at least that Jesus is a, as a teacher come from God. At least that, and quite possibly more than that. He felt he was in the presence of God. This is MacArthur. And that therefore Jesus could heal him of his terrible disease. It's both interesting and instructive to note that the scribes and Pharisees who were doubtlessly in the multitudes that day were beautifully and richly attired, yet were inwardly corrupt, proud, and unbelieving. And by contrast, this leper appeared loathsome and repulsive on the outside, but inwardly he was reverent and believing. We come lowly, with a believing, reverent heart before God, believing that I can be bold, boldly I can come before the throne of grace. I need grace. And I don't come boldly because I deserve it. Grace, by definition, you don't deserve. It's something you need, don't deserve. You, you come boldly because of your faith in the one who will give you the grace, not because of the faith in yourself. And that's certainly what we see here in this leper Therein lies one of the great indicators of separation between the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, the good fish and the bad fish. Is this, this idea of poorness of spirit, it goes back to the Beatitudes, doesn't it? The very first words of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
or the spiritually bankrupt, those that think, I have nothing to offer God. If God judged me according to my worth, I would be in big trouble. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn over their sin and their lack of worth. You have this hope of being comforted. And blessed are the meek, the gentle, not the powerful, the gentle, for they will be the ones that will inherit the earth. This, this story reminds me so much of John 9. You're probably familiar with the story where Jesus sees a man who was blind from birth and his disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Do you see that? They thought, okay, he's blind, so somebody's a sinner somewhere. This is a direct judgment of God. That was the opinion of the day. And Jesus answered and says, It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then you skip forward to John 19, 16. Some of the Pharisees, after this miracle, they want to find fault with Jesus because they hate Jesus, even though he's doing these miracles. And they said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He actually did this healing on the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such great signs? And there was a division among them. And then in verse 24, So a second time they called to the man who had been blind and, and said to him, Give glory to God. We, we know that this man is a sinner. In other words, praise God that you can now see, but don't give the praise to Jesus. And this man answered and said, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Pick up the story in verse 29 through 41. And the Pharisees still don't want to believe, and they say, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, where, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard of that anyone has opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, then he could do nothing. And then they answered him and said, You were born entirely in sin. Once again, you were born blind, so you were born already judged by God as a sinner. And you're teaching us, so they put him out. And listen to Jesus' response when he heard of this in verse 35. When Jesus heard that they had put him out, he went and found him. Jesus seeking him out. And he said... He said to him, You have... Um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asked him. And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is him who is talking with you now. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He bowed down before him. Same word that this leper is doing here. And Jesus said... For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see might become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say you see, your sin remains. Those people that come to God thinking that they see clearly, they come to Christ but they think, Oh, I'm enlightened. Oh, I'm good enough. Oh, I'm righteous enough. Oh, I'm clean enough. The Bible says that it is they that are spiritually defiled. That it is they that are not seeing clearly. Regardless of your outside appearance, if you think you're good enough, you are still unclean in the sight of God. But if you recognize that you're unclean and you flee to Him from cleansing, we see the end of this story, don't we? So His bowing posture. We see that he was bold in coming to him. 
And we see his bowing posture. But I want to take our attention now to the bending to Christ's will. Notice what this leper said when he approached Christ. He comes to him boldly. He bows before him. And here's his words. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Mark this well. He came expectantly, but not demandingly saying, Lord, first of all, Lord. Even the word Lord is saying, you're... You're the boss and I'm the subject. Right? So first thing he says is, you're the boss, I'm the subject. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He asked to be healed only if it was the Lord's will. Do you see this? He did not claim to be worthy or deserving, but left himself in the Lord's hands to do as he would. I trust you, God, with my future. I trust you, Christ, with my destiny. The implication seems to be that the leper was quite willing to remain leprous if that were the Lord's will. Obviously, he wanted to be healed, but he didn't even explicitly ask Jesus for healing. Almost as if it were too much to presume to ask, that he was afraid to even ask it if it wasn't his will. And he just says, Lord, if you are willing, you are able. Because his mind wasn't fixated just on this age. It wasn't. If this age was all that was mattered, then he would have had nothing to lose than just beg and plead and clamor, but he didn't even do that. He came with this prosuke posture and with a bendedness to the will of a sovereign. He acknowledges Jesus' ability to heal him. How far that humble spirit is from the demands of many Christians today who make claims on God's healing, blessing, and favor as if it were their inherent right. This man claimed no rights. And his first concern was not his own welfare, but the Lord's will and the Lord's glory. I've seen the absence of this heart posture manifest itself in countless ways. People come, and they come to God, and they basically give God an ultimatum. If I will believe in you, if you'll do this, God. Or I will follow you if you'll let things work out like this, God. Or I will worship you, but here are the stipulations. Whatever that if is that secures your belief, your obedience, or your worship is your functional God. You're an idolater. You're not bent to God's will. You do not see yourself as unworthy, but you see yourself as being so powerful that you can place yourself as judge over God and say, God, I'll do what you want me to if you do what I want you to. You think He owes you. You're willing to follow Him, obey Him, even perform outward acts of worship, but you're going to make Him earn it. How foolish. That is no worship at all. That is damnable presumption. In this arrangement, you're actually God and you want the Creator to serve you by giving you your desires. That's what it is. Alright, I know you're the Creator, God, but I'm going to tell you what to do if you want me to serve you. You'll pay Him for His service. You will make it worth His while by calling Him Lord if you must, by attending church or reading your Bible, by praying, by all sorts of outward observances as long as He's blessing you. How you believe that you deserve to be blessed. But when things get hard, you punish God by slacking off in your involvement in spiritual things. While I was serving God and I was... I was in church and I was really doing well and then God let this happen. Where were you, God? You didn't have time for me, so I don't have time 
for you. It's the opposite of this bentness to the will of God. And if that describes you, then I beg you this morning to repent because you have far more in common with the rejected Pharisees than you do with this soon-to-be-cleansed leper. I ask you again, are you bent to God's will? Whatever He would bring into your life. We see this bending to the Lord's will in the Apostle Paul. One of my favorite texts in the, in the epistles is where Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, he comes to the Lord and it says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. That's a very extreme word. He's tormented by this messenger of Satan to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave. And He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And Paul didn't argue and say, But God, I've done so well. I've tried to serve you so much. You owe me. No, no. He says, Most gladly. Once he gets the answer and he understands, he says, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. If you want to adorn the gospel by my patient endurance through the sufferings that you've ordained in my life, if that glorifies your name, bring it on. Because I'm bent to your will. That leper had a taste of this in his heart. He had a taste of it. I don't know if it was to the extreme that the Apostle Paul had it, but he certainly had a taste. Lord, if you are willing. And we notice lastly, not only is he bold, not only is he uh, bowing, not only is he bent to Christ's will, but we see the obvious belief that he has. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper came with faith declaring, you can make me clean. He literally said, you have the power, dunamos, to make me clean. That is faith at its highest. The absolute conviction that God is able, coupled with humble submission to His sovereignty in the exercise of His power. This man knew that Jesus was not obligated to heal him, but he also knew that he was perfectly capable of doing so. We've compared the leprosy of the flesh last week to the leprosy of sin. The Bible makes this analogy. There's a direct metaphorical relationship Christ is able to rid the leper's skin of white spots and He is perfectly capable of ridding your soul of its every black spot. Do you believe that this morning? Has the enemy convinced you that you can never change? That your sin just runs too deep? That the way, the path that you've been on is the path that you must always be on? That you've gone too long down the broad path to be able to turn around and go down the narrow one? It is a damnable lie because Christ, if you've got breath in your lungs, He promises you clemency and cleansing. He loves those that will just recognize their need. Do you recognize... Do you believe that you're in bondage to your sin in such a way that there's no hope of breaking free? Then repent of that lie and believe the gospel. Romans 6, 11, I love this verse. Paul tells us to reckon ourselves or consider ourselves, to count ourselves as dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God. You're like, but you don't know about my 
struggles. Your struggles mean nothing to a sovereign God. They mean nothing to Him. He can take them away completely. He can cleanse you. Big controversy about uh, gay Christians that you, you can have this... Uh, uh, you can be just a celibate homosexual and God can't cleanse you of that. You just don't act on it, but He can't change your desires. I serve a God that can change your desires. That you were that and now you're not anymore. My God's bigger than yours. We must worship this God that can. Like this leper, come boldly just as you are. I tell you this, to come bowing, come bent to the will of God, and by all means come believing that He is able to pardon and to cleanse. I love the old song, even though it's been abused in many ways, is this endless altar call. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I have nothing to bring before you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You're all I have. I come because you beckon me. And I come believing that you can fix me. And the next verse is just as good as the first one. Just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. You come just as you are, but you don't leave just as you were. He changes you because He's able to cleanse. We've looked at this leper briefly in four points. We want to turn our attention now in... Five points, five things to note about the Lord's gracious response. We're going to look at His compassion, His condescension, His contamination, His cleansing, and His caution. So beginning with just His compassion, we see it there. And Jesus, in response, He stretches out His hand and He touches Him. What a response to this leper's bold approach. Jesus was not repulsed by His grotesque deformities. Jesus was not disgusted by the odor. Remember, this guy probably stunk. Jesus was not fearful of the infection. And Jesus was not embarrassed to be seen with this cursed, sinful leper. On the contrary, he felt compassion. Do you feel compassion toward the broken in society? Toward the downtrodden? Will you touch the untouchables? If not, you're not much like Jesus. I don't know that you should claim the term Christian, which means Christ-like, if you will not condescend to touch the untouchables, if you have no compassion for the worst and the lowliest in society who have no one else, if you don't want to be there for them, what's wrong with you? Matthew 9, 35-38, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Repeats that in 9. And then in verse 36, he says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. You see this? You have all these wicked people, these distressed and dispirited people who are going all kinds of terrible ways, unguided, unshepherded, and unled. And Jesus doesn't despise them and look down his nose and say, well, look at those wicked, vile, ugly, disgusting people. He doesn't do that. He says, 
He has compassion. He identifies with their hurting. He feels their pain. He puts himself in their shoes. Hebrews 4, 15-16 We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you see that? Jesus, when we were, we're the despicable ones. We, compared to us, there are people that are lower than us maybe in social standing or repulsive compared to us. But that's like winning a beauty contest at a leper colony. You didn't do much. You're the prettiest leper there is, but you're still a leper. And Jesus came down for you. Can you not, as a fellow leper, condescend to love and have compassion for other lepers whose disease is more progressed than your own but are still in the same pitiable state. Can you not? We look not only at this compassion, but there's overlap here, but this condescension. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm willing to be cleansed. So he condescends to the will of someone who has no claim on him. You're talking about the Lord of all creation, the creator of all things, humbling himself and pouring himself out for someone who there's no obligation for him to do it, but he does it simply as an overflow of his compassion. We think of condescending as a bad word, but it it really just means to lower yourself, to humble oneself. Jesus, the sovereign God, the creator of the universe, condescended to hear and answer the implied request of a lowly, ostracized leper. Remember, the lepers were looked at as cursed, sinful people, yet Jesus touched him, listened to him, and did what he asked. Matthew eleven nineteen tells us, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They called Jesus a friend of sinners because it was true. He was a friend of sinners. Jesus Himself said that He didn't come for the spiritually healthy but for the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Do you distance yourself from the drunkard or do you go put your arm around him and give him hope that there is a life better than the life he's living and that there is hope for pardon and cleansing and that he's not perpetually in bondage. If he will but repent, Christ will set him free. Do you find yourself gravitating to the most attractive new attendees, the most perhaps rich or educated, but then those that are you know, less socially acceptable, they come and they're kind of ignored. You're not like Jesus when you do that. You're like the Pharisees. We must be compassionate and we must be condescending. Jesus greeted children that others thought to be a nuisance. He welcomed sinners that didn't that, that others didn't even want to be around. He looked at them as Mark says that he did at the rich young ruler. It says, and looking upon him, he loved him. He didn't say, you greedy, stupid man, when he had much possessions and wouldn't follow. But the Bible says he even had compassion and loved him. He wielded his authority to speak those wonderful, those wonderful words, your sins are forgiven. We are to do likewise. 
Romans 12, 16 tells us to be of the same mind toward one another, not to be haughty in mind, but to associate with the lowly. To be compassionate, to touch the untouchables, to love the outcast, to be okay with associating with the marginal, the poor, and the destitute, those who are often overlooked in society. Luke 7, 22. Go there. Be with this people. Serve them. Why? Because compared to our Lord, you are the untouchable outcast. You too are too unclean to come into God's presence. But He touched you. He touched you. This reminds me of one of my other favorite passages in the New Testament in the book of Philippians, uh, the canonic passage. Philippians 2, 3-11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests only, but also for the interests of others. And have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking on the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've looked at his compassion. We've looked at his condescension. I want to look at his willingness to be contaminated. According to Leviticus 5.3, when Jesus touches a leper, what happens? The moment he touches the leper, he becomes unclean. He takes on impurity. With Jesus being undefiled and undefilable, the touch doesn't make him leprously unclean, but the Bible tells us here that it cleanses the leper. But in another sense, by touching this leper, Jesus is showing that he's willing to take on impurity. And it's foreshadowing him taking on ours as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to what? To become sin on my behalf. Well, he's not a sinner. What happened? He took my sin and became sin for me. Why? So that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. This imputation of my guilt to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to me. This glorious exchange. Jesus is willing to do that. And he's glorified in doing that. We remember where this section ends up, don't we? We've got to keep that in light. We've looked at 2 through 4, but it ends up with Matthew quoting, this was to fulfill that which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet in verse 17. He took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That quote is lifted from Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced through, though, for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His wounds, by His wounds we are healed. All of us have, like sheep, gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. has contaminated His own Son with our guilt. Our iniquity falls. On him. By connecting Jesus' healing authority to Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew is showing that Jesus has the power to overcome all of our suffering. 
In light of the larger context of Isaiah, Matthew attributes this power and authority to Jesus because He paid the price to overcome our sins. He can heal our sickness because He solved our sin problem. And if you're more excited about people being physically healed from their sick problem than you are from people being spiritually healed from their sin problem, then you've got a priorities problem. Your treasure's still on earth and He's already told us it should be laid up in heaven. All suffering in the world ultimately goes back to sin because before sin came into the picture, there was no suffering, according to Genesis 1 and 2. But when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, suffering entered the world, and as a result, we live in a world marked by evil and suffering and sickness and pain. So when Jesus came to die on the cross, He came to address the root problem, which is not suffering. The root problem is sin. And He paid the price with His own life to overcome our sin so that you and I could be free from sin's penalty. Always remember, like I said last week, if you get physical healing, you still die one day. But if you get your sins forgiven, though you die here, you live eternally in heaven. Where are your priorities? We've looked at Jesus' compassion. We've looked at His condescension. We've looked at His willingness to be contaminated. But now let's look that he does cleanse. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Jesus is capable not only of contaminating himself and taking on our sin, but in granting us his righteousness as I got ahead of myself because I got too excited and couldn't help it. He makes us holy. And it's not just that he makes you holy by declaring you holy. Yes, you're, you're declared righteous. You're justified. You're declared righteous the moment you believe. But then he also shepherds you like a father, chastens you when you're in sin, and increasingly conforms you to the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 For those whom He did foreknow, He also did predestine to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that we might be the firstborn among many brethren, that we'll be like Jesus, we'll increasingly be like Jesus. You'll be cleansed of your arrogance and your pride and you'll become poor in spirit, mournful, and meek. And guess what will happen in that cleansing? Well, you'll start increasingly becoming compassionate toward the sinful. Because you're becoming like Jesus, right? You're cleansed of your pharisaical arrogance. So you become compassionate increasingly. And increasingly... You are condescending to the desires of others and the needs of others and that you sacrifice your own wants and others in order to serve even the lowliest among you, increasingly. And you're willing to be contaminated, to have your reputation bashed because, well, he runs around with that person or he associates with so-and-so or so-and-so who has this bad name in the community attends their church. We say, so what? Because Christ didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. And for me to associate with them, I'm just being like my Lord. That's what this cleansing looks like. It's not just the, you know, I, you know, I don't do that drinking and smoking and, and go to the movies and I wear short, uh, don't wear short skirts and I, you know, I'm modest and all those things. Not that they're valueless, but if that's the depth of your righteousness, you're not very righteous at all. You have an outward pharisaical righteousness unless He's given you compassion and love and mercy. When you're cleansed from being a leper, you don't then start despising lepers. 
and looking down your nose at them. When you're cleansed from lepers, you want to tell all the rest of the lepers, hey, I've got one that when he touches you, instead of him becoming unclean, he makes you clean. And we're excited to tell them because we want them to share in the glory that we've shared in, the joy that we've shared in, and we want the one that healed us to receive the glory that's due his name. The last thing, though, we see here is that Jesus does at the end give this odd caution in verse 4. He tells them, See that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and present an offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Why is that? Well, I believe there's two reasons, and I believe there's two reasons because John Calvin said there were, and I'm just copying what he said in his commentary, so I'm not that bright. But he, he mentions, Show thyself to the priest. As the ceremonies in the law had not yet been repealed, this is a direct quote, Christ did not wish that they should be despised or neglected. Now God had commanded in the law that if any man had been cleansed from leprosy, he should present himself to the priest with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The design was that the priest, by his decision, might attest the benefit received from God and that the person who had been healed might give an expression of his gratitude. Christ, therefore, by sending the leper to the priest, proves that he had no other object in view than to display the glory of God. The showing to the priest was for the purpose of examination and the offering was for the expression of thanksgiving. He wished that the priest would examine the man to make the divine favor manifest and undoubted and that the leper on the other end should, be a, should acknowledge that God had, give him, had healed him and give due sacrifices as an overflow of his thanksgiving. So we see two things here. We want Jesus, Jesus wanted him to go to the priest to be declared clean so he could be restored to fellowship with the rest of Israel by the authorities that were in charge and that it would be, they wouldn't be bypassing the law. Remember, he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So he's going through the proper channels. Jesus himself submitted to the law even in the way he healed. And he wanted to give this leper opportunity to go before God, realize what had happened, and offer offerings of thanksgiving. That's a couple of the reasons that it, he had in mind. And I believe there's another one that's pointed to in Mark 1.45 that's also important. Mark 1.45 tells us, after an, another parallel of this, that Jesus could no longer enter openly into cities. Hence we learn... Calvin says, the reason why Christ did not wish the miracle to be so soon made known. It was that he might have more abundant opportunity and freedom for teaching. Not that his enemies rose against him and attempted to shut his mouth, but because the common people were so eager to demand miracles that no room was left for teaching or doctrine. I saw this when I was in, 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 in uh, India. I was preaching the gospel, and they, they were still very... Uh, they were influenced heavily by Pentecostalism, by um, this health, wealth, prosperity, and healing. And they thought, well, here's this pastor from America, this, this godly white man that's came over to serve us. And I'm kind of an anomaly because I'm the only white guy a lot of them ever seen. And they're all, you know, they, they're, they're nice enough while I'm preaching through an interpreter. But when it's over, they're all coming around me and through the interpreter, they're telling me of all their physical ailments. And they, every one of them, oh, lay your hand on this, this one. Oh, this one's had this going on for so long. Lay your hand on him and pray for him. And man, I would be there for an hour after I had preached, touching, and I had to touch them. They thought I had to touch every single one and pray over every single one for every single infirmity. And that I somehow, by me doing that, they would be healed from their physical illnesses. Their minds were on the physical benefits they thought they might receive 
and they had no interest in the teaching. Calvin suggests that Jesus didn't want that to happen and that that was the norm. You know why? Because it's the norm for people to emphasize the temporal to the exclusion of the eternal. So I, I, I want to close you with this. What do we take from this, from this caution? We take from this, come as you are, sinner, and be healed and cleansed. Be conformed to Jesus and be like Him increasingly as you're transformed into His image. And go and have compassion. Go and condescend. Go and be willing to be contaminated. Go and desire to cleanse. Go and, and fix physical problems as you have opportunity. Give money if money is needed. Give time if time is needed. Lend your ear. Heal emotional problems, psychological problems. Feel physical needs. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What does it profit him? If you just have compassion on physical things or prioritize physical things over spiritual truths that can save souls, then your priorities are out of order. Always keep primary their people's greatest need. They need a Savior from their sin. If you've got that Savior and you've recognized those benefits... Proclaim that message to all that will hear, that they can benefit as well. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this, Your truth. Lord, we thank You for Your great compassion that You had on us in our pitiable state. Lord, I pray that those that are here, that they would come boldly before the throne of grace, just as they are. Lord, that they, uh, that they don't come and try to pretend that they're righteous like the Pharisees did and put on a mask, but that they are willing to just bear their soul and confess themselves sinners in need of the Savior and that they come boldly, not thinking they need to hide their sin, but expose it because they believe that you're able to heal, to cleanse, and to change. And they want people to see the corruptness so that they can see the beautiful power of your cleansing in their lives. Lord, give us that sort of transparency, that sort of humility, and help us to be ambassadors of the gospel, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.